we are live. So thank you everyone. Welcome back to For the Girls. We are really excited today. We have an incredible guest for all of you. She's joining us directly from the wonderful world of F1. And as you all know, we are very passionate about women in motorsports and women in F1. So we're very excited to have Claire Sibley from Williams Racing here today. Yeah, we could not be more honored, Claire, to have you on the podcast. Before we jump in, I want to do a quick run through of your very impressive bio, but I'm sure we'll dive into it in a lot more detail with you and you can add or correct me if anything is, is off here. But Claire is the head of quality and manufacturing engineering at Williams Racing. You, Claire, have held a handful of roles at Williams, starting as a materials engineer before becoming head of material science and then stepping into your current role a few years ago. And prior to your time at Williams, you were also a materials engineer at Mercedes, so you have been on multiple teams, and you received your Master's of Natural Sciences at the University of Cambridge. So Claire, it's so wonderful to have you here with us. Would love to begin talking a bit about your background. Where did you grow up? Talk us through your early life. What led you to your program of study at Cambridge? Um, yeah, so I grew up, um, I was actually born in Oxfordshire, but my parents moved me up to kind of Manchester, which is in the north of the UK um, when I was about 15 months old. And um, yeah, from there, I kind of uh, progressed through school. Um, in the UK, we study kind of our exam sets, kind of we fall at 16 and 18, um, and you cut down your subjects between 16 and 18. So you're making a decision then about kind of like roughly what you think you want to study, um, whether, you know, it might lead to a career or not. Um, and I was always into the sciences, um, math, science, kind of. And I think if I look back, you kind of, it was probably always there from being a child as well. Like I kind of like loved a bit of Lego, kind of loved taking <laughs> things apart, much to my parents' dismay um, and <laughs> things, things like that. So, yeah, so I studied um, kind of maths, physics and chemistry. And I also did art as well. So I kind of always loved being a bit creative, um, but never writing essays, never writing too much <laughs> um, or learning facts and things like that was definitely not for me. Um, and then from there, I kind of loved, yeah, loved what I'd learned and kind of looking to study at university. And again, in the UK, we just tend to study like one subject to university, um, even from our kind of first undergrad degree. And um, I yeah, just kind of science. And I love learning and kind of understanding how things worked around me. Um, and a friend's mom, who was a teacher, introduced me to material science. Um, and I was like, it's not something we study at school in the UK, but it kind of covers aspects of physics and chemistry mm -hmm. and less of the sort of atomic level stuff more around the kind of, oh, why does your touchscreen work as it does? Or, you know, what materials would you choose to make something out of it to make sure it works? Um, and yeah, so I kind of looked into it and decided that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I applied to a variety of places um, and got a place in Cambridge um, to, to study there. Um, so officially it's natural sciences, but I kind of specialized in materials as I went through. Um, and then at the end of that, again, I was like, kind of, I'd loved what I'd learned. I'd loved the science and I didn't really want to give it up. Um, and a lot of my friends went into the city and went to work for big um, banks and management consultancy companies and things like that. Um, <laughs> which is you know, great, but I was kind of like, I could always try, I could always do that in the future if I wanted to, yeah. but I could never get back into science if I leave it. Um, so I started applying for graduate jobs in a variety of different fields and um, 
more based on kind of it was going to use my degree. Um, and I happened to get a job at um, Mercedes High Performance Powertrains who do the F1 engines for a variety of teams, including Williams um, and Aston Martin and McLaren at the moment, as well as Mercedes. And um, yeah, so that's where I trained as a graduate. Um, and I did six years there before moving here. That's amazing. That is such such a cool story. And I'm super interested because in the States, I think you hit on this a little bit. It's very much not like that from a university perspective. Like we, we tout these like liberal arts educations where you can go and kind of study whatever. And it's not really with your eyes. I mean, some people definitely study like business or accounting or other things that are more in mind for a career. But I think it's less like that here than it is in the UK. And I'm curious on your thoughts of that system. And did that help you sort of know what you wanted to do earlier on? Did that help you maybe steer certain people away from like the banking and the consulting and that sort of stuff? Because I feel like in the US, that is sort of where people go. Um, That's what we did. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't mean to insult, like, no. it's, it's a great career and it probably pays way more than being an engineer. But um, no, so I am. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. So I actually like I understand your system reasonably well. I used to spend so before I started working while I was at university, I spent my summers at summer camp in upstate upstate New York. Oh um, no so way! Got a few friends nice. who kind of have still live over <laughs> there, and um, obviously like are from there. And um, yeah, I so I kind of yeah got the gist of deciding and TPAs and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, so it's very it, it's an interesting kind of way because obviously you have to make decisions quite early, and particularly like doing things like if you decide you think you want to be a doctor you're kind of making that decision at like 16 which because you have to pick certain a levels to be able to go on to do that um and so it is quite big decisions for some people um like for me I think it was just a natural transition like for GCSEs you have to kind of cover some subjects that you probably wouldn't naturally choose like I had to do English I had to write essays um and things like that and like in the job in the UK, like you can't get a job in the UK without an English, you know, you have to have English and maths as a GCSE. So there's certain core subjects you have to do. Um, so it's nice to have that choice. And obviously, like a lot of people have like a natural inkling. Um, but yeah, I think other than maybe certain degrees like medicine, a lot of people are probably not necessarily picking knowing exactly what they're going to do, but they probably know they're going to study that like that may be at university or something similar at university, but there's a lot more subjects you can do at uni than you would be able to study for A-level. Um, but yeah, then I think like particularly at Cambridge, they are notorious for pumping. I think it's something <laughs> it'll be some really low percentage of engineer people who do like their engineering degree who actually become engineers. The majority um, are off to the city. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's kind of, um, I'm not sure necessarily people go in knowing that that's probably where they're going to end up, but yeah, they come, they come poaching and offering nice graduate packages and stuff. So yeah. Sounds really appealing. <laughs> well, that's so incredible that your first job after Cambridge was at Mercedes powertrain. So how did that kind of come about and what was your role like when you were uh, more of a junior employee there? Um, yeah, so it happened, um, yeah, because I was looking for jobs that I could use my degree in. Um, I'm, I don't know, there's probably a few of us, but I am probably in a minority that didn't have a mad passion for Formula One before I got a job in it, <laughs> um, which sometimes makes me feel really guilty because some people are desperate to work in it and I kind of just fell into it. Um, 
but yeah, it was a really great place to learn. And um, I've loved it ever. Like I do love the sport now, but I love the pace. Like that's, that's for me, what's really stuck with and kind of why I've stayed with it. I realized that actually I like working on lots of different things all at the same time. And I like seeing them happen quickly. And I like seeing the results kind of get to the track and things um, in a short time frame, which you don't necessarily see in a lot of engineering fields. Um, so that's really nice. Um, yeah. And I kind of, so from there I trained, so there was a lot of kind of learning from people above me. Um, materials engineering involves a lot of failure analysis. So if parts break, we'd be looking at the surfaces of the fractures and working out what's happened and then suggesting solutions for improvements, wow. um, as well as things like R and D, um, and research and development to try and push performance further in the future. So speaking a little bit more about your role, it sounds like you just touched on a lot of things and I'm going to have a lot of questions, but what is your day-to-day like when it comes to, you know, end-to-end getting what you need out the door to help the team? And like, do you have a team that supports you? Sort of how, how is your day-to-day structured? Um, yeah, so my in my current job, um, I always love this question. So what does a day look like? I'm like, I have no idea. It Those are the worst day. questions. I um, hate that I so, asked that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also, it also makes me think, because I'm like, well, yeah, but if I can't explain what I do all day, what have I done? <laughs> what am I going home and saying that I've actually done? Um, no, so yeah, so it's kind of, I have two halves of my team. So half of my team are engineers who um we don't really own kind of any step in the delivery process we we're there to kind of pick up if things have gone wrong so if you have a quality problem um and also do continuous improvement work where we're constantly trying to learn from you know quality issues or other things that aren't working as well as they could be um to drive efficiency and improvement into the business and then the other half of my team, they do work in the production line. So they, they're the quality control inspection team. So they're receiving parts in um, from either our machine shops and our kind of um, production facilities or from suppliers and then checking that they're correct to the engineering drawing and passing them through so they can get to the car. Um, so that's their day-to-day work. And that's very kind of for them, it's quite task-based. It's kind of yeah different parts it's very varied in terms of the parts they're looking at um but kind of similar principles and practices that they're doing um and we're just yeah we're kind of making sure we do it thoroughly but also trying to make it get the parts through as quick as possible so that we can get them to the car that's super exciting and so you're how exactly are the teams sort of structured i know there are so many thousands of people who work on all this stuff where do you kind of sit in the organization and what's the sort of, I guess, Um, team dynamic like? The engineer, like, so the teams tend to have sort of two halves to them roughly, Um, the engineering teams and then the operations teams. So in engineering, that's where you have your aerodynamicists and your kind of design engineers with aero creating the the shapes of the parts that we want to make, checking kind of their aerodynamic performance. Um, And then once they've decided what the best option is, they pass that through to design engineering who turn that kind of concept shape which is all kind of basically on the computer um into a design for a part that we can actually manufacture and kind of turn into a part that you'll see on the car um so that's that's the engineering side once all that bit's done they pass it through to ourselves in operation so that's where kind of i sit um and the teams we work alongside um and then our so our job is then to try and turn that design into um 
yeah, into the parts that you see and make it um, either by machining from metallic components, like we machine metallic components or kind of laminate composite structures um, and then make sure that we're delivering that right to the drawing, to the right quality levels, um, and then ultimately, ideally, as efficiently and cost-effectively as possible um, to make sure that you've got that to the car. And then those, once they're delivered, they'll go to the race team who build the car up as you see racing on the track. Wow, that is so interesting. So it sounds like, <laughs> it's so interesting listening to this, but it sounds like you're being constantly bombarded with a ton of information and trying to have to like constantly adapt. For someone like you who's working, you know, at the home office or whatever, the factory, are race weekends for you crazy? Or are you able to balance a little bit of that with your personal life? Um, and same thing with the off-season versus the on-season. Are you seeing differences there? Um, yeah, so on a race weekend, actually, like we're so our factory tends to like, runs roughly 24 seven. So we have shifts every day of the week and then a night shift kind of on our weekdays. Um, so there will always be people in because we just have continuous manufacture. Um, but the re- our kind of operational staff, like office based staff, we tend to work Monday to Friday. So our weekends tend to be OK. Um, nice. There might be in a bit of an emergency call on a Sunday evening if we've had a large crash <laughs> or anything. Um, making sure that we've got enough capacity because we're going to have to repair a load of parts or kind of make some new ones ready for the next weekend. Um, But generally, yeah, it's okay. But interestingly for the factory, going back to kind of off on season, off season, this is building into our busiest season. So for the factory based team, our busiest part of the year is the the year with the time we're not racing. Yeah. Um, So over the summer, it, these days, because there's so many races, it's not noticeably as quiet, but like historically in F1 this summer was quite quiet for them, for the factory teams. Um, and then it ramps up at this time of year through to kind of the uh, the kind of delivery and build of the car, which is usually sort of February time, um, just before testing starts. About sometimes it being hard to watch when things aren't going exactly how you would have wanted. How do you feel like morale is at the team do you think people have just a ton of energy going to improve going forwards or is it tough sometimes when everyone's putting in such long hours at the factory and are not necessarily seeing those results yeah it's definitely tough and it's kind of you know we're definitely not where we want to be and you kind of you do as managers and things you know that's part of our job to kind of keep that focus going forwards um it's an exciting it is an exciting time though you know it was sad to see the Williams family leave us two years ago but the opportunity that it has brought in terms of the investment that we've had um is exciting and you know it's it's tough we always knew it was going to be a journey to get back to where we want to be and be able to be competitive again but you know it's I think points wise it's probably not totally reflective but we had definitely have seen improvements um this year um and then yeah we're just kind of you know then that hopefully builds into kind of the next year and the next like couple of years um particularly with like cost capping and stuff at the moment so i think there's a lot of hope there is definitely a lot of hope um but yeah it can be it can be frustrating particularly at times where things like you know you know a lot of work has gone in and um we had some upgrades for silverstone um and within three seconds of the start those upgrades were <laughs> in a wall um and oh. that you know, that was yeah it was a challenging moment knowing how much time had gone into delivering on that and the hope that was attached to it um, and to see that it wasn't even going to make it around the race um, was definitely difficult. Women's health is so important and balanced hormones are key for that. 
We've been loving Hormone Harmony from Happy Mammoth, who's committed to making women's lives easier. Hormone Harmony contains adaptogens, science-backed herbal extracts that help the body adapt to stressors like hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. We love it because it helps us maintain optimal hormone levels and supports our mood and general well-being. There is a reason that one bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. For a limited time, you can get 15% off on your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use code F1R the girls at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code F1R the girls for 15% off today. Okay, friends, it's festival and concert season, and you know it's all about the boots this year. That's why you need to make Tacova's your number one place for festival style this spring. And don't forget to shop their seasonal and limited edition offerings, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. We love Tacova's. They have a first wear comfort, which basically means there's no break in period. It's the best thing ever. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, and shop new styles. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personal. Personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's really no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, though, just visit tecovas.com, T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. We all need a little extra health booth sometimes, and Fleur Marche makes it easy for us to supercharge our wellness. Their botanical wellness patches have been such a fun addition to our routine. We just stick them on wherever we want. They have them for sleep, relaxation, focus, and other things. And the patch delivers ingredients to your body in a subtle but effective way, and the results last up to 12 hours. Fleur Marche also has botanical gummies and their new organic nutritional powder, Green Machine. They only use the best ingredients and are tested for potency, contaminants, and heavy metals before and after production. And one of our favorite things, we also love that the company is founded and inspired by women with the mission of helping us feel 100% every single day so that we can have full energy and crush it every day. Find your new wellness essentials at fleurmarche.com and get a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your first order site-wide with promo code for the girls at checkout. Orders over $50 also get free shipping. Go to fleurmarche, F-L-E-U-R-M-A-R-C-H-E.com. Use code for the girls for 20% off your first order. Yeah. Speaking about cost cap, budget cap, all those things, especially for you and when you guys are thinking about spare parts and upgrades and fixes and all of that, what are the thoughts internally about the cost cap and and thinking about that? Has it been really difficult or... Um, it makes you definitely makes you think differently. Um, I think, you know, we'd always been a team that were maybe more cost limited than others anyway. Um, so it's not, it's not such a massive change for us, maybe compared to how it is for some teams um, where they've, you know, they've just had so much money to spend over the last few years. Um, but it does make you think differently and it, it kind of gives you that clear focus that kind of spend is, is important um, and reflective on kind of how much things do really cost um, and, you know, the time and things that, you know, do it, and you just question, like, do you really need that? Do we definitely need quite so many of those or could we survive without and um, and that it all mounts up um, each time you choose to to spend something and, and how that equates potentially to an upgrade or performance that, you know, which is the most important thing for us to do. When you mentioned um, the big upgrade package for Silverstone, when there is a plan for a big upgrade package what is your role kind of like in in quality is it 
more on the front end, helping them learn from past mistakes or more after the upgrade is implemented, seeing if the parts are actually working as they're supposed to? Um, there's a bit of both, but yeah, we definitely try to move to that kind of um, upfront and kind of learning from, you know, like you say, go back to data. We have lots of it and we, sh- you know, there's a, you know, there's lots of it to process, but that should be used as a benefit. So um, we're always trying to kind of make sure we learn from what happened last time um, to then make it better this time. And something else might come up, but, you know, it's just that continual improvement cycle um, to make sure that we're kind of not wasting any of the information that we've gained. And we, you know, because that's all efficiency and cost, you know, there's no point making the same mistake a second time around. Claire, have you, have you been to, have you been to a race or how many races have you been to? Um, I've been to one <laughs> in my time here. So yeah, it's always, it's always the first thing people ask if you go walk it, work in Formula One. Um, and it kind of goes, yeah, eight or something like 90 to 95% of our staff never visit a race, like would never formally visit a racetrack kind okay. of with the team. They might go, um, to watch as like a spectator um because so there's a limit to how many people you can that take to sense. the track um yeah. that's been in there for a number of years um to limit costs and spend because it was kind of getting um quite hard like i think some you know the bigger teams were taking huge numbers um so yeah i went to one race in 2018 um to monza in italy um so it was really Ooh. nice to go um but yeah it was a, like it's interesting because because they're so they're so structured in like every person's got their like defined role and purpose at the track. Um, so it's sort of quite different, like it's difficult to like sort of know what to do when you're there yeah. because everything's so slick and kind of planned and stuff like that. Um, so it was a really interesting experience, but yeah, I think I, to feel kind of like I'd want to go more, I definitely would like want a particular purpose and stuff, but it was a great experience to have. Yeah, Monza is definitely high on my list. I would love to Have go you guys there. ever been like to race? We were just at Mexico, oh, yeah, which said. was so fun. And we were at Austin last year, but we are hoping to go to many more, especially international ones, because the history of Formula One, I feel like, is so much more pronounced. It's like internationally Monza so or Vegas. Than... Monza or Vegas. You have to think through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will say I wasn't able to go to Mexico, so I'm going to go to Miami in the spring, but I really would love to go to one of the historic European tracks. Silverstone would be amazing. Yeah. So we will see. I have a question about, it probably depends on the person, but how involved, if at all, are drivers typically in the car, in some of your work? Like, are they kind of into the data or are they pretty checked out of the Um, process? Yeah, from what I've kind of heard over the years, it's very, it's very like driver dependent. Some are like, some are brilliant. And like, that is part of like how they um get to being the drivers they are because they understand the car they understand the physics they understand all of the data and kind of what it's showing them um and i think yeah and and also being part of the team so some you know will be in the factories you'll see them in the canteen they'll just go and sit with people for lunch (laughs) like those kind of things and you know like they are another member of staff and they're working like for us you know they're driving the car that we deliver I'm not going to ask if you have a favorite driver because I feel like we're not supposed to ask that. But is there a driver that you relate to most that has driven for Williams either now or in the past? Um, I don't oh, This is where I'm probably like lacking my experience formula on one knowledge because I was <laughs> never a fan. Um, 
no, I think like one of the favorites here particularly is Valtteri Bottas. Um, yes. Because he, yeah. um, he actually like spent a lot of time like working in each, like he really got involved with the team, particularly when he was one of our reserve drivers and kind of just like worked in every department. So he'd like laminated some composite parts and he kind <laughs> no of way. went, yeah, he, he got really stuck in. So he's always been a kind of, you know, a Williams favorite and kind of when, when he went, I think there was some sad like so because they everyone felt like a connection to him because they'd spent time with him wow that's that's great we have a lot of Valtteri fans in the audience right Tiggy <laughs> oh yes I'm a big fan I love Botas <laughs> that is so nice to hear and probably helped him so much just getting the skill level that he has now being so involved in everything speaking of kind of more behind the scenes we're wondering what is something do you think most F1 fans maybe wouldn't know about kind of the environment at the factory or what goes on behind the scenes in the engineering department. If you're kind of only watching races on the weekend, what's something people might not know? Um, I think people are often shocked about how many people are involved. Yeah. Uh, when you say <laughs> yeah. like, you know, there's seven, we have about 750 um, on site, you know, or within the whole team. Wow. Um, you know, and that our job is to make two Formula One cars every, well, every week. I used to say every other weekend, but these days it's about every weekend. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, that, and I think, you know, that's what people shock because obviously you see, you know, these days the sort of like drive to survive and kind of the TV and you'll see a few people in the garage. And I think usually, I think a total we have about, I think it's 40 to 60 at the track. Um, wow. But yeah, the majority of people um, on the team are, are here. <laughs> Um, and working behind the scenes and the amount of yeah the amount of time and effort that goes in behind it all from what people see um, from the sort of glamour and the celebrities and all of that there well I, I'm glad that you mentioned drive to survive and I mentioned Vegas before but I feel like in the past two years basically since we started this podcast and got really into it um, Formula One is definitely changing and with that can come good things and bad things we've talked about it a lot on our podcast but one of the great things that we've noticed is just more visibility into what it takes to be part of the sport, all of the different support series. And then with that comes, you know, the big question of women in Formula One, women in motorsports. From your experience, you know, not not as a driver, but as a huge component of the team, what's that been like for you? Have you seen that interest also increase just from your day to day? Um, yeah, definitely. Like interest in Formula One, like, yeah, I used to like drive to survives definitely kind of like triggered it in people and I think like when I say I wasn't a fan of Formula One like kind of I wasn't a fan of like yeah I didn't really understand why people were interested in watching cars drive around a track and I actually when I was at university I went to a trip um to Braun as well it was Honda and then it became Braun and is now Mercedes Grand Prix um and that's where I first saw what went in behind the Formula One cars and um and that was where I was like actually this is more interesting than I ever thought and that's probably what sparked a potential interest in it and I think that has is what Drive to Survive has done it's kind of you know there's a little bit of added drama in there but um it does give a pretty good kind of like review and kind of behind the scenes um footage of you know and, and it opens that door to actually like what 
what it does take to go racing and what's kind of you going on rather than people just seeing kind of some celebrities and some cars racing and and things and that and I've been to a few weddings and things with friends where you sat next to people and you say oh, what do you do and I do this and they're like oh I never was into Formula One and then I watched Drive to Survive and now I love it um, <laughs> and actually my brother's mother-in-law is the same she's like obsessed with it now like she's like every weekend it's like I've got a race on and she's watched Drive to Survive and she loves it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's definitely opened the floodgates and opened up the sport fan wise. Do you feel like that will that has or will trickle into like inside the sport? Like, do you think F1 will have more women working in the sport or more people who like typically weren't historical fans? But, you know, now that the fandom has grown so much, maybe that will also seep into the sport itself. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think, you know, hopefully, well, hopefully people see those kind of aspirational figures. You know, there are, um, and it's harder at the track because so we kind of sort of mechanics are probably dominated by males. But I think most actually I've see, you see more and more like we've we've got a female um, as part of our race team uh, kind of working on the car. And I've definitely seen pictures of other teams with that as well. Um, and then, I, yeah, so once people see and I think that's where getting anyone into kind of a career that they didn't think was possible. It is about visibility and making sure that they can see that people are there, um, you know, and maybe if they did a bit more kind of I think we probably probably are like we have a lot of female engineers here like they're just factory based and things like that um, and obviously drive to survive doesn't really touch into kind of what's going on right, right back here um so you know if they could do more of that but i think you know as teams we're all doing a lot more of that as well um so i've definitely seen it in in general not necessarily the drive to survive effect like definitely seen it improve over my time um in the sport and you kind of see it going forward and it you know, it'll take time to get more and more to the top and higher up. Um, but there's definitely more coming through um, in terms of the pipelines in. I wanted to ask, you said that so sometimes when you're like at weddings around public, people get excited when they hear that you work for Williams. Um, and we we did some research on you, of course, because you're one of our favorite newest guests. Um, but you have a daughter. What did she think about you working in Formula One? Or she's just like, oh, that's mom's job. I don't even think. Um, so she's two. So she's kind of. <laughs> she um, loves yeah, not talking. So she's got her life planned out already, <laughs> yeah, of course. Exactly. Um, no, so actually my husband works at Williams too. Um, uh, we haven't oh, no always worked in the same spot, but he used to travel. Um, so at the moment she still refers to it as daddy's racing car, which I probably need to stop. <laughs> I think it's because I used to sit watches when he was away. We'd sit, we would watch some of the highlights and be like, "Oh, should we see if we can spot Daddy in his racing car?" Um, so I think just picked that up. I probably need to like stop that. That it's like both of our racing cars. He is also a bit closer to it, so he he's um he's a mechanic by training, and he builds some of the parts that go on the car. So he is physically building it, whereas I kind of I'm a bit more like less close to the actual parts, but. Maybe she can. Yeah, so I'm sure she's, you know, I think she is already showing like engineering traits and she's only two as well. (laughs) The Legos. She loves the Legos. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, loves the Lego, like kind of like, yeah, loves seeing how things like fit together and stuff. And I'm like, is this just two year old intrigue or is this showing that you're definitely going to be an engineer when you grow up? (laughs) Well, also, you all are a full Williams family. Yeah, she'll have to carry on the (laughs) mantle. I guess I'm curious a little bit about sort of the culture and the history of F1 in a place like the UK. I know you said you weren't really like a huge fan before coming into the sport, but it's always interesting to us as Americans because it's a relatively newer phenomenon. And so I'm curious if you feel that sort of tangible 
history in the UK of F1? Like, is it something that people are talking about all the time? Like, what's kind of the the vibe over in the UK? I think you definitely, I think, yeah, because I think it's probably hard because obviously I did, a lot of people have like got into it through their families and stuff. So if you had like a dad that was really into it, then kind of the kids have got, <laughs> like the kids have got into it and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I think, but yeah, you do like where that is, there is that passion and like definitely people who kind of their Sunday afternoons are like watching the races and that's what they do and, um, and things like that. Um, yeah, obviously it wasn't, but you know, my husband at seven, he decided that that was what he wanted to do. Like he was watching races and that's what he decided he was going to be a mechanic in Formula One. Um, so yeah, there definitely are like real passionate fans who are kind of dedicated for, for years. And, you know, and if you go to Silverstone, you'll see that the, the times I have been, you kind of, the, the eight, like the kit and the kind of leg, you know, there's people wearing (laughs) kit because obviously they've been a fan for kind of 15 years or something. And it's like really old Williams kit that's there. And, um, and that's what makes it exciting. You know, there's moments where, you know, it can be challenging. It can be frustrating, but it's when you go and see those fans and you see, the people who do just genuinely passionately care about the sport and that they're you know they've paid all that money and gotten camped in a field like silver's been dry for the last (laughs) few years but some years it's really wet but yet they're still there in their tents like next to the circuit um just loving it and you kind of go actually that is that's why work is exciting and that's kind of why it's a like really fun thing to do totally we were thinking that a lot with like the Japan race, especially this year, which fans, the race was so delayed and fans are just like sitting in the rain for hours for like the, just the dedication and the commitment is so inspirational. Yeah. <laughs> Spa is one because it always rains at Spa and there's not really yeah. like, I think if you go to Spa, like you're pretty much camping because it's kind of in the middle of nowhere and it always rains. And it always, <laughs> they are dedicated. <laughs> Definitely. In terms of, of history, what is it like working at one of the teams on the grid that has the most history and legacy in the sport. And along those lines, was it a huge change when the Williams family left the team? And what was that sort of transition like in, in the factory? Yeah, it wasn't, you know, it's great. And I think it's definite, you know, I, I love being part of Williams and part having that history and that kind of heritage. And, um, and it's why a lot of people are, here at Williams necessarily another team um and the fact you know we've always had the same name and because lots of teams have been around but they've evolved from kind of one thing into another um and Williams having been Williams ever since the beginning um so it was really sad to see the family leave um you know they was you know Claire was here and particularly for me as well like having that kind of female um kind of sort of like the DTP and kind of that aspiration to be like kind of seeing someone at the top. Um, but in terms of transition, it hasn't been, I can Doralton have been very supportive of like keeping the name um, and keeping the kind of values and culture that we had of being that family team and being kind of the legacy and the history being a really important part of what we use to carry us forward as well. Um, so actually the transition has been quite kind of, smooth and and easy in that sense because they haven't we haven't changed you know we're changing how we're doing things and we're changing you know we've invested a lot of money and things like that but um in terms of that culture and the values they they haven't really shifted because that was an important part of Williams and we want to keep that that's awesome that's that is very cool so I maybe just to end 
Claire, since you've been working in Formula One for a long time, you're a Formula One family, any advice to listeners who potentially would want to work in the sport or just generally are following it? We have a lot of people messaging us all the time, women especially, who are like, I really want to work in Formula One or I want to get more into the sport as a woman in Formula One. Do you have any advice for them yeah I think I mean ultimately don't feel you can't like you know we're like we're inclusive and we want we want to support more women into engineering and motorsport definitely um so you know definitely don't think it's something you can't do um and the other one is keep trying I think you know I joined as a graduate and kind of it's easy to say like oh if you don't get in the first time around um you you won't ever make it but you know we we've had people join us from a whole variety of experiences of careers and kind of different stages of their careers as well um and so yeah keep trying keep building up that experience and kind of what you have to kind of offer um and and look at different things you know there's people in my team who have an engineering background but you wouldn't necessarily study quality engineering or kind of necessarily know that that's a role in things so um yeah kind of just keep a lookout for different kind of opportunities and and things are changing you know data analytics wasn't a big thing five years ago and now it is so you know we're looking for people in that so some people who feel like they're doing something that would just never fit in formula one like you never you never know um what's going to be needed and what jobs are going to come up as well i think that goes a lot to say like teams now have full social media people and things that are so involved yeah. in that. Whereas maybe 10 years ago, that wasn't um, even a thing. You know, that's and a, that, you know, we have point. a team who one of, I know one of you's lawyer, but like we have a team of lawyers Like you know, there, there are, there are jobs around just the core kind of you know, design engineering race team mechanics <laughs> um, that all fit as part of the business. And you know, we do a lot of it ourselves because that allows us to kind of keep control, but also kind of have that speed through everything that we do as well. Claire, thank you so much for taking time on a Friday afternoon, no less. So we really appreciate it. This has been so fun and we can't wait to see how Williams does the rest of the season and onwards, knowing that you've been a huge part of it. Brilliant. Thank you very much, guys. It's great to talk to you.